Hello and welcome to The Appetite, a podcast brought to you by Opal Food and Body Wisdom, an eating disorder treatment center in Seattle, Washington. I'm your host, Carter Umhal, a therapist, artist, and writer. The Appetite is all about issues of food, body, sport, and mental health. Virginia Soul Smith is the author of The Eating Instinct, Food Culture, Body Image, and Guilt in America. She writes about food, body image, and feminism. She's also a contributing editor with Parents Magazine and co-host of the Comfort Food Podcast. Today, we're calling her up to talk about her new book and her relationship to diet culture as a journalist in this country. Welcome, Virginia. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I am so excited to learn about your book. You have just come out with the book, The Eating Instinct, Food, Culture, Body Image, and Guilt. I think I'd just love to hear from the get-go kind of what your work has been like up to this point and, and what the inspiration was for this book. So I started my career writing about health and nutrition for women's magazines, which, you know, cut to the point is I wrote a lot of dieting stories. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the beginning of my career, I struggled with this. I'm always someone who resisted the message that women need to make our bodies smaller. But at the same time, I was sort of grappling with myself with okay, but what about what the research says or the science around nutrition? And, you know, I was very caught up in, like, what does the latest study say this month that we should be doing food-wise? And so even though I could kind of see it wasn't working, I had this idea of, like, okay, well, I just haven't found the right study or the right expert. And, you know, once I do and once I write that story, food's going to make sense for everyone. We just need the right plan. Of course, fast forward 10 years, um, (laughs) it was clear that that was not an effective strategy for helping people make peace with food. And along the way, I shifted to reporting more about the rise of the alternative food movement, the good food movement, whatever you want to call it. This was kind of mid-2000s when people like Michael Pollan and Mark Bittman were writing a lot about organic and local and community gardens. And again, that was sort of There's a lot of romance to those concepts. It was easy to feel like, oh, now we're really on the verge of this breakthrough around eating. And, you know, it's just that we need to eat more plant foods and more, quote, whole foods. And this is going to be the answer to everything. And what I really didn't see for a long time was how much that movement was revolving into the wellness culture that we have today and the cult of clean eating. And it really was becoming just another diet, even though, of course, diet was sort of becoming a dirty word. But it was still about giving people this list of restrictions and rules to live by and making food more complicated than it needed to be. So then in 2013, my daughter Violet was born. And Again, I kind of went into feeding a baby with a lot of the same stuff, like, well, I just need to do all the research on breastfeeding and get the best lactation consultant, and I'm going to do this perfectly. I'm going to feed my child perfectly. Then when Violet was one month old, she almost died. And it turned out she was born with a rare congenital heart condition that caused her to go into massive heart failure at four weeks old. And it also meant that in that whole first month of her life, when I thought I was breastfeeding her and I had these experts watching me and giving me tips on latch and hold and all this, what we didn't realize was how sick she was. We didn't realize she was actually starving and losing weight really dramatically. And then, fortunately, Violet's life was saved. We got through her first open heart surgery. We took her home, and she completely stopped eating. She wouldn't take a bottle. She wouldn't breastfeed. She was 100% dependent on a feeding tube because she had sort of had all this early trauma about both the way I've been trying to nurse her at home and then all the medical interventions. And for a tiny baby, it was just too much. She shut down. And so suddenly I had to figure out how to make this baby feel safe around food again. 
and there was no plan. There was no expert. There was no research. There was, you know, all these years I'd spent searching for the right external plan to tell me these things. It didn't exist. We Mm -hmm. had to start from scratch. We had to really figure out how do we make a baby feel safe around food? How do we heal this trauma she's been through and help her rediscover her sense of hunger and fullness and the fact that food should be comforting? All those, those are the eating instincts. That's something babies are born knowing. We all are born knowing how to do. But, you know, how do I do that if I don't know if I always feel safe around food when we live in this culture where so many people don't feel safe around food and so many people feel so disconnected from those instincts? So it was really that process of teaching her to eat again and sort of then unlearning everything I'd spent a decade learning. That's what led me to write the book. Wow. What a stunning story to think about having to suddenly integrate these things when your daughter has almost died and you're probably desperate for answers and you've had so many tentative answers for years, but they're just not going to cut it. I didn't like come home from the hospital and they're like, it all makes sense. (laughs) This was, you know, that was 2013. I didn't start writing the book until 2016. You know, like Mm -hmm. there was, it was a long process. It's Mm -hmm. really been five years of both living it and then doing the research and distilling it all into the book. So I feel curious about your experience kind of learning what was happening with Violet. I'm assuming that you kind of got the sense that, oh God, no process of eating for her has ever felt safe yet. None of it has been going so well. So when you started thinking about the eating instinct, um, how did you conceptualize that? It was hard to see at first because, you know, it felt typical to me, but I'd never breastfed a baby before, so I didn't know what I would, you know, I didn't have anything to compare it to. But then in looking back, I could see, oh, you know, she wasn't feeding as often as my friend's babies were. She was sleeping a lot. She was, you know, latching briefly, having struggling a lot with her latch. But what I did know was that she'd had that first cry for hunger that babies had. You know, she had in the first days latched on and been very determined to feed before she started getting sick. So we knew on this core level that she knew how to experience hunger and babies just very naturally know when they're full. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not something they need to be taught. So that part I kind of knew was in there. The question that we really struggled with was, has that instinct been erased by the trauma or is it just kind of masked by the trauma and can we uncover it again? And that's a question that's really divisive when you start talking to therapists who do work with pediatric feeding disorders. There's a pretty wide range of opinions and a lot of the programs say, you know what, you really can't reconnect them. The best we can do is sort of train them to eat on a reward system. You know, there's a lot of like take your bite, get a prize sort of Mm -hmm. strategies used. And that really bothered me when I started to look at it because I felt like, well, how can I expect a kid to grow up and have a good relationship with food if we've just sort of discarded this inner wisdom of her body and have taught her to eat for what I just thought, well, how is that not going to turn into a power right, struggle? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd been around enough toddlers to know that <laughs> everything's a power struggle anyway. Like yeah. if I literally am getting her to eat bite, 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 according to like how much Peppa Pig she can watch, like <laughs> we're going to run out of Peppa Pig at some absolutely. point. So that I knew was not going to work for us. But I started researching and We'll see whether or not Violet thinks it's a good thing having a health journalist for a mother, but I (laughs) could do a lot of research. Um, And so I started researching and finding folks who do more often called responsive feeding, child-led feeding. There's kind of a subset of feeding therapists who work with kids and try to take much more of an approach of following the kids' cues. And it is frustrating. It's much slower than, you know, training them according to the rewards because, you know, 
know, you really have to first heal that trauma. You really have to be patient. But ultimately, I felt like this was our better shot at building a healthier relationship with food. And it was, you know, it was a slow process. It took the better part of two years before she was really a full oral eater. And if a typical baby starts doing solids sometimes around four to six months, like Violet wasn't doing solids till well over a year. You know, she wasn't even putting food in her mouth. So it was like slow, 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 slow. And then in like a few months, we suddenly made tons of progress. And I think it was really like once she had, you know, started to feel safe around food again, once things going near her mouth was no longer terrifying. And she was suddenly like, aha, this is what hunger is. Oh, this feels good. This is comforting. I want to do this. That it just makes me feel like almost a little bit teary to think about that actually coming back. It was amazing. It was really, it's, you know, one of the most humbling experiences in my life and just, you know, gives me so much pride in her as a person that, you know, it's a pretty big battle for a little little kid to fight. Mm-hmm. And I also am imagining there was hard work on your end too. And I'm curious, yeah. what, <laughs> I'm curious what the actual ins and outs of some of those things that you were doing with her looked like. So we worked with a speech-language pathologist who did feeding therapy and took a very child-centered approach. And initially, we kind of put food, the bottle, the breast, we just kind of put aside. It was just clear that that was so traumatizing to her. And as a little tiny baby, we were just working on, like, could she tolerate a toy on her face or on her chin and near her mouth? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and always stopping when she sort of showed that it was too much stimulation. It was, you know, too sensorially intense for her or what have you. But over time, she gradually became more and more comfortable with like, okay, I'll, you know, you can tap my chin with this teether. Now I'll put it in my mouth. Now I'll sort of gum it a little bit, bit by bit by bit. And then when it was time to introduce solid foods, it seemed like that didn't trigger the aversion in quite the same way, perhaps because it was like a different flavors. You know, I think she was really conditioned that the taste of breast milk or formula was like you know, that alone was really traumatizing. And also babies on feeding tubes tend to throw up a lot. So she was like throwing it up all the time. So if you want to recondition a kid to not like a flavor, that's a good way to do it. That'll really do it, yeah. Right. But then by the time she was, again, around one, and we were able to start offering solid foods, that was more on her terms. And we did take more of a baby-led weaning approach where we gave her lots of little finger foods. Because I knew I couldn't just come at this kid with a spoon. She needed to learn and want to put it in her mouth herself. And it was a lot of her just exploring food on her tray, uh, still relying on the feeding tube for all of her nutrition. And then slowly, like, certain textures were interesting to have on her mouth or certain flavors. And and the interesting thing was she gravitated towards very strong flavors, like Mm. blueberries or lemon or even, like, chicken tikka masala was one of the first, like, real meals she (laughs) ate. And we don't know what – no one can really quite explain that. That just might have been – I don't know. I mean, it certainly didn't taste like dairy. So maybe that was, you know, a more interesting thing to explore where she may have needed more high input flavors because she hadn't sort of developed from an oral motor perspective, some of that stuff. I don't know. But anyway, that's fascinating. Yeah, it was super fascinating. So she started with that. And then once we were at a point where she was, we called it like recreational eating, we could then think about, okay, now let's drop some calories out of the tube feeds, give her some time to start feeling hungry, and, you know, very gradually we could wean her off the tube onto feeding herself. Mm. What you're describing feels so familiar to me, working with eating disorders in 
higher level of care for so long, just, uh, you know, the exposure work of introducing new foods. And so I'm making that connection in my head. But I'm curious for you, as you started watching all of this happen and then, you know, putting all the pieces together later for this book, where did you start kind of connecting the dots between dieting and kind of this similar but very different process of reintegrating safety? Well, one piece of it was when I started looking at the programs that were available and very quickly rejected that behavioral model that I described where it's like eat your bite, get your reward, because I felt like that was like basically a diet. I mean, obviously the goal is to have them eat, not not eat, but it was still like follow these rules. It's very rigid. The feeding style is very rigid. You have to feed them in exactly the same way at every meal. And it's just like it's, you know, in fact, I often tell parents, like, don't feed them at the family table because you have to be so focused on, like, the bite and the reward and the bite and the reward and making sure the reward's offered quickly enough. And all of that just felt like, well, that's what dieting does. That takes us out of our normal flow of food. It doesn't allow for flexibility in eating. That Of course, some days you eat more, some days you eat less. Like, it doesn't allow for any of those natural patterns. So that was kind of the first moment. The second moment where I was like, oh, this is really going to be a book about dieting was when I realized here we had a baby who we were trying to encourage to eat and who we wanted to feel really positively towards food. You know, the whole thing was how do we create more positive associations with mealtime so she'll want to be there and she'll get that this is a good thing. And even with that goal so clear in everyone's mind, there were so many moments where somebody would say something negative around food in Violet's earshot, Mm. not maliciously or not because they were trying to undermine our mission, but because that is how we feel like we have to talk about food. The story I always tell is we had a caregiver offering her some little pieces of cheese, like little cubes of cheese on her high chair tray. And this was when we were still like, if she put anything in her mouth, it was like, we're doing backflips with excitement. (laughs) And the caregiver said, oh, Violet, you're so lucky you get to eat cheese. I can't eat cheese. It makes me fat. Mm. And I was like, ah. But, you know, I don't mean to sound critical of that person because a few weeks later, it was me. My husband gave her a piece of bacon and I was like, we can't give her bacon. What are you doing? And I was like, wait, what? No, of course we can give her bacon. Right. <laughs> like, but there's certain foods that we have this sort of knee-jerk, it's a, quote, bad food reaction to. And so even when we're talking to a kid who desperately needs to be eating anything, it's really hard to stop that narrative that we just kind of have running in our heads all the time. And that's when I realized, like, it was as much about our stuff. It was as much about my need to feed this child, quote, perfectly and me needing to step back from that as it was about her overcoming this individual trauma. So you make the the clear link between this eating instinct and kind of the work of body image. Will you explain that a little bit as well? I mean, I think it's all of a piece because we have the eating instincts, which I define as our sense of hunger, or fullness, and also this really primal knowledge we have that eating should be a comforting experience, that that's what babies instinctively figure out about food very quickly. And then very quickly, we decide that as soon as you're off breast milk, food should no longer offer comfort. Like you should only oh, eat for, yeah. you know, fuel as sort of the diet culture mentality around it. So that's one big piece of it, because the reason we decide it's wrong to take comfort in food is because we're afraid of fat. Mm-hmm. So that's where that, that cultural message comes from that we have to fight against. And the other thing is, the more research I did for the book and the more I started talking to researchers who study body weight and how all this works, our weight is a kind of instinct. And if we get out of our own way, our bodies regulate our weight. And I don't mean they'll regulate everyone to be thin. I mean, right. we're supposed to be a range of sizes. We're supp- Some of us are supposed to be bigger than others. And 
that is something that we have very little control over. And we're sold this myth that if you just control how you eat enough, you can totally control your weight. But the truth is you can't do that unless you're engaging in the type of restriction that's incredibly problematic and dangerous. So, you know, that's the other kind of instinct related to food is that you can't actually work on your weight in the sort of concrete way we've been told. We can't make it a project the way we, we're always told we should. Mm-hmm. And, and that then contributes to a sense of our natural bodies being unsafe. Right, exactly. And what we need to recognize is like we were born knowing how to eat. Our bodies, you know, have all this sort of genetic programming and biological factors that are determining what size we are. And all of that works just fine until you put diet culture in the mix. <laughs> like that's what screws it all up. Mm-hmm. All the messages saying that yeah, actually you can't totally. trust your body. Right. And don't, you know, don't take pleasure in this, in this meal. Don't mm-hmm. savor this experience. You know, you're doing it wrong if you do that. I know that you work within the realms of feminism and all of this as well. And it's so hard for me to think about kind of this distrust of the body and to not think about kind of <laughs> all of that through a feminist lens as well, imagining what it means to actually trust your body as an act of kind of a rebellion against what we've learned is not okay about our innate wisdom and our innate curve and our natural selves. Is that something that's always been there for you to be kind of looking through all of this with a lens yeah, of feminism? absolutely. No, I think it's it's all of a piece. And I mean, I, I'll go one step further. I think when we teach little kids that it's better to have a smaller body, that you shouldn't listen to your hunger. And, you know, we teach little kids this. You don't have to have an extreme situation like Violet. I mean, parents do this all the time. You need to eat three more bites of broccoli. You're eating too many cupcakes at this birthday party. Like, we're constantly manipulating our kids in food. And when we do that, we're constantly sending them the message, don't listen to your body. Trust me, I know more than you. Mm. And especially with girls, we have to stop this. We can't tell girls not to trust their bodies because girls are going to grow up and be in situations where we need them to listen to those cues from their bodies. And I think it's not just about food. I think now we're talking about sexual situations. You know, this is the Me Too movement. Like, it's all of a piece. I don't mean to sound like only girls need to worry about that. With boys, it's also important because it's a way of teaching them to listen to their own bodies. And then, of course, that means you should respect and listen to other people's bodies. And, you know, this is all part of that same cultural message that we need to correct where – when you tell girls that their bodies are just something to be manipulated and shrunk down and made as small as possible, you're really telling them that they don't have a voice, that they don't need to take up space. And that is completely wrong. Completely wrong. <laughs> and I mean, I'm with you on that. I feel like I've heard so many people, myself included, sort of struggle suddenly um, at some point in life where their voice hasn't been heard, mm-hmm. whether that is in a sexual assault or simply just in conversation, but struggling around like, why didn't I bring my voice more? Mm-hmm. And asking that question with such earnest and such sadness and self-blame. And if you're looking at kind of the messages around the body from the get-go, like, of course you weren't able to bring your voice. Right. Of course right. you weren't trusting that you had something important to say and that it should be listened to. There's almost no information out there that suggests that you should be listening. Exactly. Which is heartbreaking. Yeah. No, it really is. And I mean, I think the message we need to be giving over and over is like, you get to take up your space in this world. Like, you have a voice that needs to be heard. And that's, yeah, again, why when it came to how we were going to help Violet as a newborn overcome this trauma, I thought, I can't follow this path that's going to have her relying on other people to eat all the time. You know, she has to rediscover this connection. And, you know, but it's an ongoing process. We all have to keep fighting to reconnect to our instincts in this way. Mm -hmm. 
you've said that in this experience with Violet, you certainly were beginning to question all of the ways that you were relating to food. Did you find yourself kind of specifically going into a, a new way of relating to your own gut instincts or your own desires? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and in some ways that's still unfolding for me. I feel like this is a journey we're all on. It yeah. takes a long time. And, you know, I had a second baby in the process of writing the book and women get so many messages about our bodies during pregnancy and postpartum. And, mm-hmm. you know, it can be a really challenging time to feel connected to your body in a empowering way. But no, I mean, it really forced me to reckon with a lot of the stuff I'd bought into in the past and sort of step back from various, quote, experts or plans that I had thought had made a certain kind of sense. I had stopped dieting a few years prior to having Violet. Like, I'd pretty much stopped, like, actively dieting, but I definitely still struggled with the, like, oh, I probably should be, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like I would have, like, constant weeks where I was like, no, oh, but I, I mean, of course, I really need to be more in control of this and, you know, still back and forth with those kinds of messages. And this experience really helped me see in very clear black and white why I had to stop that. And, you know, a really powerful motivation. I have two daughters now, and I don't ever want them to hear me talking negatively about my body. Like, I feel such a responsibility there. So that, it you know, it started as something I was doing for them. But very quickly, like, when you do turn off some of those voices, and, you know, one of the big things I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to say anything out loud negative about my body or negative about food. That I can get under control. And then when you stop saying it out loud, you can stop hearing it as much in your head. You know, I would hear myself about to think it and think, well, I'm not going to say that out loud. Well, then why am I even thinking it? You know, Mm -hmm. like it was a great way to sort of question that whole process. And yeah, I've really seen my ability to enjoy food increase, my ability to enjoy treat foods or, you know, however you want to define the foods that get deemed bad that are not at all bad. I can enjoy them in a much more balanced way. There's, I'm not struggling with the like guilt and overdoing, underdoing, you know, cycle that you know gets so negative. Has there been any continued shifting in your perspective around kind of the wellness industry and particularly like maybe those links, the Mark Bittman, the Michael Pollan links to the environment that feel like they've kind of been thrown in yeah. there too. What's really interesting about the wellness culture right now is on the surface, it's being driven by sort of, you know, the Gwyneth Paltrow model, the kind of celebrity female domestic goddess, right? And there's so many Instagram influencers that fall into this category, and it's not just Gwyneth, so she's certainly kind of a, you know, <laughs> she's uh, patron saint yeah. of it all. <laughs> but when you step back and look, and I knew this because of having worked in women's media for so long, and so I've, you know been involved, I, you know, go through various celebrity lifestyle books. I kind of know how these celebrity domestic goddesses get made. And they're getting their information from the Michael Ballins, the Mark Bittmans. And so at the core, what this really is, is a thin white guy approach to food that doesn't work for the rest of the world. And that comes very much from a sort of patriarchal top-down messaging around control and you know, I'm not going to dispute that they don't have good points about the environment, improving farming practices, like all of that is great. But when they decided to take that message and link it up with the so-called obesity epidemic, and really that was a marketing strategy. It's like hard to get people to care about organic farming. But if you tell them that organic farming is going to make them thin, now you have everybody's attention. So it was, you 
you know, it's a left turn that the movement took in the mid-2000s that has really intensified into this sort of more celebrity-driven clean eating cult that we have now. And I think it's very important to recognize that as much as we, you know, you want to hate on Gwyneth or the sort of Instagram messaging that gets out there, that's coming from something even deeper that we need to look at, which is this like idea that white men, thin white men control how we all eat and control how we feel about our bodies. And that we have to fight back against. I appreciate you putting it that way. The thin white man is also historically also the rational man. Yes. Like, yeah, definitely. let's think with our heads. Let's sit alone in a room mm-hmm. and figure oh, out. Oh, it's science. It's just <laughs> right. science I'm it's telling you about exactly. how you should eat. And eating is not just science. I mean, yeah. it's not. Eating is also instinct and emotion. And these things are just as important. And so linked to kind of the feminine archetype for sure. But I don't say feminine just as female Um, just as woman, but the part of us that is able to know what our body wants and to be in touch with our emotion. So to just be looking at all of this through science limits so much. Well, and it's the huge mistake that the, you know, war on obesity has made is that we sort of view people's bodies as just a set of metrics to manipulate. And we've completely ignored the impact on their mental and emotional health. Like, that doesn't matter at all if we're fighting this epidemic, if we're, you know, in the front. It's like such mm-hmm. this all this war talk and this, you know, yeah. very, very macho kind of approach to it. When, in fact, you know, we know that rates of eating disorders are higher than rates of type 2 diabetes in children. Like, we know there's this whole other epidemic nobody's talking about, that this is mm-hmm. what's actually happening. It's, if we're going to be having a battle, like this is the battle, but it's not against people. It's not against eaters. It's against the culture and the messages that are perpetrating all of this. It is an incredibly vast world once you start looking and Mm -hmm. undoing diet culture. You're Mm -hmm. suddenly in, (laughs) you are in the depths of just what the system of our large society is is doing with us. Yeah, for sure. I know that you have a podcast called yeah. Comfort Food. How do you talk about these things in that forum? Comfort Food is so much fun. I host it with my best friend and collaborator. Her name is Amy Plangian, and she writes a parenting food blog called Yummy Toddler Food. And, you know, the great thing about Amy is, like, you know, she can make, like, amazing pancakes, and they also look like adorable animals, like this sort of (laughs) really fun approach to food that's very kid-friendly. I lack a lot of those sort of creative culinary talents that she has. (laughs) You know, something we talked a lot about personally and what led to the podcast was, you know, as she's been building her blog, she's like, I'm regularly encountering these messages of diet culture and kid food, you know, all this pressure on parents to make the perfect lunchbox, to get their two-year-olds to drink kale smoothies. Like, there's all this... You know, we got a press release recently for paleo baby food. I mean, I just can't even go there. (laughs) And so we were like, let's have a podcast where we can talk about a lot of the practical challenges of feeding our families. Like, you know, that just that like 5 p.m. Oh, my God, what am I making for dinner? And my two-year-old's clinging to my leg screaming. And how am I going to get through this? Mm -hmm. You know, that is like a real challenge to family meals that we all deal with. And we can brainstorm solutions but let's also talk about, okay, when is diet culture showing up? Like, am I not ordering the pizza because I really do want to cook dinner for my family this week? Or am I not ordering the pizza, even though that's a logical solution when the two-year-old's screaming <laughs> attached mm-hmm. to your hip and you didn't make a plan for dinner? Because I feel like we can't eat pizza because of X, Y, and Z reasons, you know? So let's really look at how can we embrace some of the shortcuts that are regularly shamed in our culture that, in fact, are super helpful to people. And we talk, I mean, we just talk about everything related to feeding our families, feeding ourselves, and how to do it in a more sane way. So it's a lot of fun. 
Oh, it sounds so fun. I've been listening a little bit, and I have definitely found it to be incredibly helpful, and I'm not even a parent, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we all have to feed ourselves. Exactly. That's, you know, and that's what we talk about all the time. The big problem for parents, and moms particularly, is that we neglect feeding ourselves because it comes all about feeding the kids. So our mantra is feed yourself first, and we talk a lot about what that means. But, yeah, even if you mm-hmm. don't have kids, that can be a challenge because life and work and all of the things, mm-hmm. so. Can you say more about what it means to feed yourself first? Well, so we came up with that because we had both had moments in our parenting journey where we realized we weren't doing a good job of that. And, like, I realized early on I have to wake up about an hour before my kids wake up, basically, so I can love them that day. I mean, I love Mm, them every day. But I need to have time to, like, drink my coffee, read the news, read my book, eat my own breakfast, and, like, just, like, be Virginia for a Mm -hmm. little bit. And then I'm ready to go into mom mode and get everybody else breakfast. And if I don't do that, if I sleep until they sleep, then I'm like shotgun out of bed and I'm like literally feeding other people before I feed myself. And I'm cranky and miserable and the morning ends in tears on all sides. (laughs) So we can't do it that way. So that was sort of like the very concrete example, but it's lots of different things. I mean, a lot of times parents, and again, I don't mean to say like only moms, but moms are often the ones who this is just a bigger struggle. You know, I hear a lot of stories of like, I don't eat all day because I'm so busy chasing after the kids and Mm -hmm. work and I miss lunch. And then I end up just snacking all night and eating tons of junk food at night. And I feel so bad about it. And it's like, well, you just need, we need to figure out how you can eat during the day. So you're not setting yourself up for that problematic thing in the evening, you know, that makes you feel bad. Or, you know, like, how can we support you? Yes, eating lunch, Mm -hmm. (laughs) eating breakfast, lunch and dinner. You know, or you get into this pattern of making dinners that is just the food your kids will eat and you don't even really like it. Like you would rather be eating something else. That happens a lot. And if you're doing the heavy lifting of cooking dinner, however many nights a week, I mean, it is work. Even if you love cooking, it is a lot of work to feed a family every night. Why are you not making recipes that you like best, even if they aren't going to eat it all? You know, like you at least one night a week, like, sorry, guys, this is what mom wants to eat. So, you know, there's lots of different ways it manifests, but I think it's just a really core way of reminding our audience and reminding ourselves that our relationship with food is so important. Because, again, that's the diet culture talking of, like, moms need to feed their kids perfectly and basically, like, not even eat themselves is sort of the message. Like, you need to be getting back in your pre-baby body. You need to be focused on how many vegetables you're getting into your child. Like, your relationship with food takes a total backseat, and it absolutely shouldn't do that. And back to this this conversation around feminism, if you're not able to emotionally, let alone nutritionally, give yourself what you need or right. honor the fact that you need something, right. then, you know, what kind of deprivation continues out of that and what kind of example, of course, is, is then also passed along that, you know, it, you're not able to teach your child maybe, too, that, like, it's okay to take a break and... You are human. (laughs) I mean, also on the feminism front, we talk a lot about how to make feeding the family more of a shared project. And, you know, this varies from couple to couple. But a lot of times in traditional, you know, heterosexual marriages, you have the mom still in 2018, you have the mom doing all of the food prep and the dad, you know, maybe because of his work schedule or whatever, whatever, doesn't really get involved. And that creates such an unfair burden. And how can we reset that? Even if one partner is not a cook and one partner is, like, well, the non-cook partner can still, you know, go to Walmart. In my house, it's like my husband does all the Walmart runs, which are like $7 a week because we have (laughs) small children and we're always out of goldfish and milk. Um, (laughs) You know, and how can you, like, that takes a big burden. I have much more energy to cook dinner because I didn't have to, like, go out for milk again today, you know. So it's like how to have that more shared approach to these things. 
because the emotional labor around food is tremendous and you know we don't talk enough about that and how to how to make that more equal in a family thank you so much for joining us virginia we are excited about your book and we're hoping that our listeners will be too so please check it out the eating instinct and listen along with virginia on comfort food podcast as well it's been so good to talk to you thank you for having me this has been great you're so welcome Thanks so much for listening, and thank you to Jack Straw Cultural Center for sound engineering, to Aaron Davidson for the Appetite's original music. Please go ahead and subscribe to The Appetite on your preferred podcast app, and if you would like to, we would love it if you would leave some sort of review or comment there. Um, we love getting to hear how the podcast's going, and we also really appreciate the promotion because it allows other people that are interested in these non-diet approaches to conversation about food and mental health to find us more easily. So go ahead and do that. You can also follow along with Opal more generally um, on Instagram at Opal Food and Body on Facebook and Twitter. Hope to talk to you soon and tune in next time. Thanks.